This morning's scripture comes from John 8, verses 12 through 20. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. I'm going to take a a second briefly to thank Kyle for preaching last week and serving us well by faithfully guiding us through uh, another psalm as he's done for many years now. Rightly connecting head and heart and action is key to Christian maturity, and in addition to the content of the text itself, the sermon itself, I appreciate Kyle's commitment to fighting for that in his own life, and when he preaches, inviting us into that battle as well for our own lives. And in case you didn't know, Kyle was preaching, and as a way of serving me personally also, as I traveled to Michigan uh, in light of my uncle's passing, thanks to those of you who who prayed for me and my family during that time. Well, after wading into the murky waters, it's one way to say it, of John 7, 53 through 8, 11, a couple of weeks ago, it's good to be back on solid ground by, um, but by taking a look at that, that passage. So finishing John 7 through 7, 52, and then taking a uh, preaching through the 753 through uh, 811, and then taking another week gap with Kyle preaching. There's a distance between John 752 and John 812 that I don't think is meant to be there. Uh, and and because that distance is there, both textually and with me being out of town, we run the risk of missing an important connection. And I and I hope throughout the sermon to help you to see that, but I think it's good at least to mention it right now. Uh, John the John in the John eight passage, this this one, and in the John seven passage, seven thirty seven to fifty two, we see two almost identical things, in a sense, in structure anyway. In both both those two chunks of of Scripture, both of which happen in the context of the Feast of Booths. Jesus made a claim about himself in seven to offer rivers of living water and, and here to be the light of the world. They were deeply rooted in the feast tradition. So remember, they're they're in the Feast of Booths. It's happening as Jesus is saying these things. And there are things that people were doing that, that the the children of Abraham were doing during the feast, 
that the things Jesus said were deeply rooted in those, the feast traditions, as well as Old Testament prophecies in, in both these stories. Likewise, in both passages, I hope you notice this, this matters. I hope to tell you why in just a bit. But John devoted significantly more time to the response that people gave to what Jesus said than to what he said itself. That's a big deal. In other words, what, what Jesus said in both cases is absolutely remarkable. Tr- truly awesome news. And yet J- John gave more time to how people responded to it than the good news itself. Both of these passages. They, they really go in these ways hand in hand and are almost certainly meant to be back to back so we don't miss it. But anyway, to paint an awesome picture of Jesus the Christ and the good news that is for the world. So paired together, they also help us to see, and this is why I think John spent more time on this, the disorienting and deadly effects of sin and our ability to understand and appreciate that. Let me say that again. That's a big deal. When these two passages are seen right next to each other, they paint a remarkable picture, an awesome picture of Jesus as the Christ and the good news that is for the whole world. Paired together, they also help us to see even more clearly the disorienting and deadly effect that sin has on our ability to understand that and appreciate that, which we see in the responses. So the heart of the passage is this, get this, Jesus is the light of the world. That's the heart of this passage. Jesus is the light of the world. That's unimaginably good news, particularly for a world plunged into darkness. It is my hope and prayer that God would be pleased to use this passage in the sermon to draw us out in increasing measure of the darkness. And don't make, make no mistakes. Even if your hope is in Jesus, there are still pockets of darkness that you need to flee from. And so whether you're not a Christian and still entirely in darkness, or whether you're a Christian, and that's another way of saying what sanctification is, is letting the light get into every pocket of darkness that remains in you, it is my hope and prayer that God would be pleased to use this passage in the sermon to draw us out of the darkness and into the light of Christ. Let's, let's pray that that would be the case. Thank you very much for giving us the opportunity to read your word together in the psalm and sing these glorious truths about you, the light of the world. Thank you for that. Thank you for the ways that it gives us a chance to celebrate the the joy that is already ours and already in our hearts through Jesus Christ and also for the way in which that prepares us to hear this sermon to fill us with gladness and thankfulness. The light of the world has come, even as we now lean into the text that teaches us that the light of the world has come. Thank you for that. God, I pray that whether it be complete darkness for those whose hope is not yet in you, whether it is for someone in a particular darkness, a particular sin that is entangled in and overwhelmed by, or whether it is for those who have pockets of darkness that they don't even know yet are pockets of darkness. I pray that in all of those cases, and any other I'm not thinking of, that your light would shine in increasing measure this morning. Drive away the shadows. Drive away the darkness. 
drive away the confusion and the evil and the lies and the death and bring instead the light and life of Christ and the truth, clarity, goodness of his light. God, help us in every way to stop loving the darkness and instead love the light. Help us in every way to stop believing that there is a path of life and satisfaction that is in darkness and instead realize that it is only in the light. Practically, make us a holy people this morning, a holier people. Sanctify us, we pray, by the power of your Spirit, through the blood of your Son, and for the glory of your name. I pray this in Jesus' name. Well, Jesus knows how to give opening statements. And in another powerful one, Jesus declared himself, I am, declared of himself, I am the light of the world. But before we dive into that and the particulars of that, I want to remind you, if you're just joining us, I want to inform you, if you've been here, remind you that this is one, it's the second, it's one of the seven main I am claims that Jesus made in John's gospel. If you are an artist or an aspiring artist, or kids, if you're wondering if you're an artist, it would be awesome if you could create some kind of representation of these seven things. I am the bread of life. We saw that in John 6.35. Here we see I am the light of the world. John 10.7, I am the door of the sheep. John 10.11, I am the good shepherd. John 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14.6, I am the way, the truth and the life. John 15.1, I am the true vine. I remind you of something else to help root those and then root our text this morning. Remember, I've said this a lot of times. I'm going to say it a lot more. We're just on chapter or chapter eight of we've got a ways to go and more than 20 chapters. The whole point of all of them, the whole reason that John or the 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 main reason John wrote what he wrote in his gospel, and we know this because he tells us this in chapter 20, verse 31. But the main aim, John's main aim in writing his gospel was to convince his readers, which includes you and I now, that Jesus is the Christ in order that we might believe on him and have eternal life. That's his main aim. Well, each of these I am claims cuts right to the heart of two things. Listen to this. This is a big deal. By claiming I am these seven things, it cuts right to the heart of two things. Number one, the fact that Jesus understood himself to be the Christ. These are Christ claims Jesus is making. And in his way, he's revealing that to us, that he knows that he is the Christ. I am these things. And then second, this is awesome. Second, it cuts straight to the heart of the fact that Jesus of it cuts straight to the heart of Jesus' understanding of what it means that he is the Christ. In other words, it's one thing to say that. Kind of grew up hearing Jesus Christ. It's not his last name. It's, it's a description of something that is true of him. And in these I am claims, we, we come to understand with greater clarity and in greater measure what it means that he is the Christ. You with me, Grace? So his claim to be the light of the world is both of those things. It is it is an admission or an acknowledgement from Jesus that he is the Christ, 
And second, it is a description of what it means that he's the Christ. So to help us better grasp all of that then, the, the fact that he is the light of the world and the significance of this particular claim, I'm going to give you three zoom levels. We're going to start up tight, and then we're going to zoom out once and then zoom out once more to see what Jesus had in mind as he said this and what he intended the people he said it to to have in mind as well. And the first Zoom level is the feast itself. So the most immediate context was, again, the Feast of Booze or the Feast of Tabernacles. A few weeks ago when I preached through the end of chapter 7 and Jesus' offer of living water, I pointed out that Jesus made a statement that it, it tells us, John goes out of his way to tell us when and where Jesus made that statement, that it was at the height of the water-pouring ritual that took place in the Feast of Booths. It was a ritual practiced every year throughout the week, each day of the week, and especially in a more significant way on the last day. And it was on that last day where they do it seven times instead of one that Jesus offered living water. This is what I said at the end of that sermon. The point of that ritual, the water-pouring ritual, which is when Jesus said, I offered living water. The point of the ritual was to celebrate the miraculous way in which God had given water to his people from a rock through Moses and to anticipate a similar miraculous giving of water through the Christ when he came. For that reason, because water played such an important daily role in the feast, Jesus' claim would have been most clearly understood and amplified. Well, here's what I need you to see. Jesus' claim to be the light of the world has another, similar, feast-specific connotation. In other words, there's something about the feast itself again that made Jesus' words carry extra weight. According to the earliest Jewish written tradition, I'm going to read a quote from it, it's the Mishnah, at the close of the first festival day, so you remember the water pouring happened each day, but primarily at the end, The greatest emphasis was at the end. Well, there's another ritual that they would do that happened in its most significant way. It happened throughout the week, but most significantly on the first day. So at the close of the first festival day, so at night on the first day of the feast, they went down, people of God went down to the court of the women. That's the furthest in that women were allowed to go to the court of the women where they had made a great amendment. They were There were golden candlesticks. There were four golden bowls on top of them and four ladders to each candlestick and four youths of the priestly stock and, their, and in their hands jars of oil holding out 120 logs, which they poured into all the bowls. They made wicks from the worn-out drawers and girdles of the priests And with them, they set the candlesticks alight. There were individual candlesticks and a a big sort of candle chandelier that they would light. And there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem from that point on that did not reflect this light. The main point is that from the first evening on, and most significantly on the first evening, throughout the entire feast week, candlelight was an important I said unmissable, but I don't think that's a word. You you couldn't miss it. It was an important and un, unmissable aspect of the feast. Light would have been on everyone's mind every 
evening, every day, in a special way. Jesus knew this. He was this. Understanding this, Jesus had another perfect backdrop for his claim and another way, get this grace, I'm going to come back to this in a second, and in another way to reveal himself as the source of another shadow. If you don't know what that means, ask me about that later. That is, it's one of the coolest statements I've ever written. I'm allowed to say that humbly. Uh, So let me say it again. Understanding this, Jesus had another perfect backdrop. So light was on the brain. It was all around. It was an important part of this. Sort of like if he said, I am the fireworks of whatever on the 4th of July. It was just there. You couldn't not think about this. Understanding this, Jesus had another perfect backdrop for his claim and another way to reveal himself as a source, as the source of another shadow, the fulfillment of another of mankind's deepest longings. All right, let's zoom out, second level zoom, just a bit more. Within the Gospel of John, Jesus' relationship to light, his connection to light, has already been and will continue to be a key theme. In the introductory paragraph where John sort of sets the stage of all that is to follow, intentionally drew drew his readers' minds all the way back to the beginning of creation and all the way to the end of time. John explained one aspect of Jesus' nature. He said this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in him, verse 4, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. A little later, John's Gospel in chapter 3 expanded on that a little bit more. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light. The point of this passage is to stop doing that, to come to Jesus, love the light rather than the darkness. But people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. This is a fulfillment. This passage in the the leaders, the Pharisees' response is a fulfillment of this does not come to the light lest his deed should be exposed. But who, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. Well, in our passage, as we're about to see, Jesus continued to press on that, speaking of himself in this way. He understood himself to be the ultimate source and fullest sense of all light. And going forward, Jesus will continue to describe himself in these terms. John 9, as long as I am the world, I am the light of the world. John 12, the light is among you a little longer. Walk while you have light, lest the darkness overtake you. In John 12, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in the darkness. That's our application. That's what we're after with this text. If the Spirit is pleased to drive this in us, that's what will happen. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness, any of it. So the main thing for us to see is that light is an essential aspect of Jesus' nature and the Christness of Jesus, and it was therefore a consistent and important theme for both John and Jesus in this gospel. All right, last Zoom level. One more time, we're going to pull back. John and Jesus certainly said what they said, about Jesus and about light with several Old Testament prophecies in mind. If you want to look up later, I put a bunch in the manuscript. But Isaiah in particular understood and 
God revealed this to Isaiah to proclaim to the people. But listen to this. He promised that the Christ would be a light for the world. Isaiah 42, 6 and 7. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and I will keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. I'll give that to you. To open the eyes of the blind. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. From the prison, those who sit in darkness. What a remarkable passage. By tapping into the significant place of light in the Feast of Booths, and in the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Christ as the light of the world, Jesus knew that his words would not fail to land. They landed all right. We'll see how in just a little bit. But he knew that no one would mistake what he was saying. Understanding this, John highlighted this idea throughout his gospel. Coming to realize this helps us lean way in on Jesus' words. Now, now follow me here. Grace, all of these things combined help us to see something truly amazing. Before coming to the meaning of Jesus' words, what does that mean that he's the light of the world? Before we get there, I want to draw your attention to one of the sweetest revelations or realizations that you can make as you work your way through the Bible. We just started in Berea. If you didn't join us today, start next week. We're, we're going to spend the summer learning how to read our Bibles well. And if it works, like if it really works and you really learn how to read your Bibles well, one of the sweetest things that can happen as you make your way through the Bible is the understanding that absolutely nothing you will ever experience. One of the key messages of the Bible is that absolutely nothing you will ever experience in this life is arbitrary. Everything that exists, exists for a God-given purpose. Things that we often give little thought to because they're just so embedded in reality are gifts from above to create in us categories to understand the infinite glory of God. We find two examples of this in the last few paragraphs in John. Water and light. There are perhaps no more ordinary. Is there anything more ordinary than water and light to us? There are perhaps no more ordinary or essential things. Is there anything we need more than those two things? We're almost never more. Think about this. We're almost never more than a few feet away from them, and we can go almost no amount of time without both of them. That's remarkable. And so we don't think a lot about that. But have you ever stopped to consider the fact that God did not need to make us to need them? He had a reason and a purpose for doing that, for creating them, and then orienting us to them in the way that we are. Did you ever stop to think about that? Well, I want you to stop and think about it now, whether you have or haven't. He chose to, to make those things and to make us need those things in the way that we do, above all, so that Jesus' words in John 7, 38 and here in 8, 12 would make sense to us. He's creating for us through those things in our relationship to them categories that we need to understand his infinite glory. Marvel at this, Grace. Get this. Kids, you can get this. We get thirsty and need water to live so that we are able to understand what Jesus means when he says that he is living water, the true source of all satisfaction. Likewise, we need light. We need light to see and we need light to live so that we are able. He made these things and made us related to them the way that we are so that we could understand Jesus' claim to be the light of the world, the true source of all understanding in life. You with me? 
I don't think you're with me. Are you with me? That's awesome. That is unbelievably awesome. Light exists in the world, in the physical realm, so that Jesus could say this right here, and we would understand what it meant in the spiritual realm, the truest realm. All right, well, rightly understood then. The feast, the gospel, and the prophets add all kinds of weight to what Jesus just said. But what did he actually mean? What does it mean that he's the light of the world? What exactly was he getting at in claiming to be the light of the world? Well, he tells us, at least in some measure, in verse 12. The heart of the claim is that as the light of the world, look at it, verse 12, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Well, what does that mean? Three main tenets of this greatest news. Number one, sin has thrust the world into darkness. Jesus claimed to be the light of the world. Understanding that, appreciating that, living in light of that begins with the simple, tragic reality that sin has thrust the whole world into darkness. In order to truly appreciate why Jesus' announcement was such good news, we need to understand the bad news first. Since Adam and Eve, sin has been in all mankind and darkness with it. The John 3 passage that we just read, or that I just read a minute ago, is rooted in this truth. The main point for us to see here is that Jesus' declaration that he is the light of the world was spoken into a world consumed with darkness. All people, since the first people, naturally walk in darkness. Second, as Jesus' explanation and the Isaiah prophecy I read both make clear, this kind of darkness is marked by a combination of confusion, lies, evil, and death. Confusion, lies, evil, and death. That's When the Bible talks about this kind of darkness, that's what it means. As you can tell, the news gets worse before it gets better. Darkness and confusion go hand in hand. When we cannot see, navigating anything is difficult. However, while it's frustrating to try to do almost anything in the dark, sin-induced darkness goes deeper still. Biblically, it is characterized not merely by confusion, but by lies and evil and death. That is why the religious leaders, which we'll come to in a second, the response to this, that's why they, along with so many throughout Jesus' ministry, responded as they did. It was precisely because they were immersed in sinful darkness that they couldn't see Jesus for who he was. I've asked you this a bunch of times. I'm going to ask you this a bunch more in John's Gospel. How could the only Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, do the things he did and say the things he said? How could he be standing right in front of them and have them completely miss? This is the answer, at least a big part of the answer. That's why they missed it. That's why they missed it here. That's why they missed it throughout the Bible it was because they were in darkness that they misunderstood, lied about, hated, and eventually killed Jesus. And it's the same thing today. Have you ever wondered how you could be so, you could read your Bible and experience the presence of God and feel so overwhelmed and amazed by the glory of God and to the point where you walked outside and saw your neighbor and told your neighbor and they look at you like you're a total fool? Have you ever wondered how that works and why, why it works like that? It's the same thing. This is why so many still reject Jesus and his design for life and gender and sex and goodness and purpose and everything else. It is why they are 
not only these things are not only missed and dismissed, it's it's one thing not even to see it or to understand it. It is it's it's why that's the case, but also increasingly despised. The spiritual darkness is explains why so much of the world is as it is. I had a conversation with a very enthusiastic non-Christian recently. And one of the things that I was able to say to him was, one of the reasons that I'm a Christian, or at least one of the things I'm able to see as a Christian, is that there is nothing else, there's nothing else in the world that can explain why things are the way that they are, like the story of the Word of God. There's nothing else that can explain all of this. And I've known this guy for a number of years now, and I've met with him many times now, and for the first time, for whatever reason, me saying that made it made, made him think, at least in a different way from what I can tell. And he started asking, well, what about this? And what about this? And we were able to talk through different things that we experience, and he's experienced some really tragic stuff. Well, what about this? And how does it relate to that? And it's unbelievable how powerful this is at, at explaining why things are the way they are today. Well, this is bad news, but the cure for cancer is only good news if cancer is real and it is deadly. Having your college loans paid off is only good news if you actually have college loans. And finding out that the light of the world has come into the world is only good news if you know that you are in and lost in darkness. Well, all of this combined then leads to the goodness of Jesus' pronouncement. As the light of the world, Jesus was clarity, where, where darkness is Confusion and lies and evil and death. Jesus was clarity and truth and goodness and life. He had come into the world. Not just that he had brought it with him. Not that he, you know, he had a little trailer he brought from heaven and he had a bunch of storage compartments and in those storage compartments were these things. Jesus didn't say, I brought these things with me or I, I have these or I found these or God sent these with me. What it says is he is these things. Light isn't a market cornered by Jesus or something that he brings with him when he travels. Jesus is light. He is clarity. He is truth. He is goodness. And he is life. In addition to that, Jesus is in being these things, the rescue and the only rescue from sin and darkness. To come to Jesus, which is what this is a call for, so he says, whoever follows me. To come to Jesus is to leave darkness. It is also to leave confusion and to be able to see clearly who God is and who you are and who Jesus is and what he is requires of the world and offers to the world in himself. It is to leave lies and gain truth. It is to forsake evil and accept righteousness. And it is to be rescued from death and being to be given resurrection life. Coming to the light of Christ is to be given spiritual sight for the first time. It is what, is, what allows us to see the holiness of God and our sin as sin and righteousness as righteousness and to walk the path of forgiveness and freedom that is in Jesus. And it's what allows us to receive and give the love of God to others. It is the beginning of the freeing of our wills and the ability to recognize that God is greater than you could ever have imagined. In a world that is dead in darkness, Jesus' declaration that the light had come was the greatest news anyone could ask for or imagine. And so with this 
knowledge. How could anyone do anything else except rejoice? We were plunged into darkness, which is confusion and lies and evil and death, and the light has come. How could we do anything except praise God? How could Jesus' original hearers do anything other than that? And since the author, offer still stands, how could anyone around us do anything other than that? Well, they did, just as we do, something other than that. Let's consider the response of those who first heard Jesus. While the heart of this passage is Jesus' claim to be the light of the world, that's only one verse. <laughs> in verses 8 through 20, that gets one verse. That's the heart of the passage, and it gets one verse. The rest of the passage focuses on the response of the Pharisees, and then Jesus responds to their response, just as was the case at the end of chapter 7. It is not insignificant, Grace, that John chose to highlight the response of the leaders more than the claim itself. It's it's not insignificant. It's not insignificant in that Jesus is and always has been who he is. As we are confronted with the reality of what that means, and the biggest decisions we have every minute of every day is what we're going to do in response to that. We need to know how to respond to it, and as is the case here, how not to respond to that. So much of our lives are simply a matter of being confronted with some truth about Jesus and his word or among his people, and then needing to know what to do about that. So how then did the leaders respond to what Jesus just said, and what did Jesus make of that? Let me ask you this. Just it's From our side of things, it's easy to look at what the people in the Bible did and think how foolish they were, and they were. But I wonder what would you do if farmer's market starts in, what, a couple weeks, a month or something like that? We're at the farmer's market. We're eating tasty pork chops and, and pulled pork sandwiches and later on some corn on the cob. If you haven't experienced that, you should plan the summer. We're out there and some guy that, you know, he's been around town. We've seen him a little bit. He's done some stuff that are a little hard to understand and said some things that strike us as odd. And in the middle of the farmer's market, he stands up and says, I am the light of the world. What are you going to do? For real, what, do you, what are you going to do? How would you respond? What's the first thing that comes to your mind in that scenario? For me, I think it's, my first thought would probably be, this dude's nuts. I mean, I don't know what else is going on here, but this guy's nuts. And if I could get over that, I imagine my second response would be to go and see how I could help this person. Like, you know, what, what can I do? You, you got, you're dealing with some stuff. How can I help? I don't know what you would have thought. That's, as I thought about it this week, I think that's what comes to my mind. But what would not occur to me, if I had a list of 10 things and those were the first two, what would not be on there was some legal technicality. I, I would not have come up with some legal something or other, which is what the Pharisees did. Look at verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, I'm the light of the world. You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Having seen and heard all that they did from Jesus, the Jewish leader's response concerned a technicality of the law. According to the law, we saw this earlier in chapter 5, Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 19, and a couple other places, more, more than one witness had to, was needed. In other words, more than just my testimony, I needed at least another witness, ideally more, to establish the veracity of someone's testimony when... There was a dispute. 
That's what they had in mind. Well, Jesus didn't, didn't, uh, Jesus didn't dispute that. He agreed to it. Again, you can read about it in chapter five, the end of chapter five. But there he said, I have witnesses. I have John the Baptist and I have God himself. Well, the main point of the Pharisees is something along the lines of this. This is the Dave paraphrase of what the Pharisees were getting at. By God's design, big claims require big proof, and you have none, which is silly because he did. Anyone can make claims like that, so God has given us a way to test them, and you fail that test. The way is multiple witnesses, and you don't have those. You say these things about yourself with no one to back you up, so we're right in not believing you. Again, as we've seen many times throughout John's Gospel, the Jews and the Jewish leaders are consistently pictured at grasping at straws. Crazy things are happening in front of them. Things that you cannot explain apart from the power of God. And they're trying to find these little things to justify their disbelief. Their eyes were darkened, and they were therefore unable to see what was right in front of them. They were willing to do anything to keep from having to acknowledge Jesus as the Christ, They were willing to entertain just about every conceivable conclusion related to Jesus' claims, except that they were true. Such is the darkness of darkness. So how then would Jesus respond to them? He tells us right away. Look at 14. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. No one was arguing that you can't tell the truth unless there are witnesses. They're just saying in a court of law, we don't need to believe you if you don't have witnesses. And so Jesus is saying, you're sort of missing the point of all this. This is not ultimately about true or false. It's about proving it. But Jesus says, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me also. Confused, of course, as always, in darkness, they said to him, Where is where is your Father? And Jesus said, You know neither my Father nor me. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. In response to the Pharisees' response to his contention, The response was, you don't have enough witnesses for us to believe you or for your statement to be true. Jesus said six things. We've seen most of these already in John's gospel, so I'm just going to name them. But here they are. Jesus' first thing is, my testimony is always true. I never lie. I am God and I am truth. The law was given to you. These, This law that you keep coming back to was given to you as a reflection of my character. That's what it is. At its heart, it's a reflection of who I am. And it's also a means of protecting you from one another since you fall short. I am the fulfillment of it, while you are unable to keep even the smallest portion of it. That's the first thing he said. Second, that was that's verse 14. Second, if you knew where I came from, that is ultimately who I am, you would believe me. But since you don't, you judge by the wrong standard. And since you judge by the wrong standard you've come to a wrong conclusion. Again, verse 14. Verse 15. Third, rather than judging by the right standard, the eternal spiritual truth that is me, you judge with your own wisdom and according to what you can see. That is your flesh, the flesh. Number four, 
Well, you spend your time in wrong judgment. I judge no one. That's not why I'm here. I've said that before. I'll say it again. That's not why I'm here. But even if I did, even if I did judge as you are judging, it it would be perfect in every way and in perfect agreement with the Father who sent me since the Father and I are one. Verses 16 to 18, number five. Nevertheless, even though I am not bound by the law in the same way you are, which is why he says your law, because I have my Father as my witness, I keep the law that you're accusing me of breaking. You think I broke it. I didn't even break it, even though you misunderstand it. And finally, six, from verse 19, all of your problems with me, again, stem from the fact you think you know God, but you don't. As I've said many times, if you really knew God, you would receive me with great joy and eager obedience. So obviously, claiming to be the light of the world is no small thing. Why would anyone believe anyone who claims such a thing? Jesus' reply answered that question in simple and profound and irrefutable way. You should believe me because I'm the Christ, the one you have claimed to be longing for for ages and generations, the only Son of God sent in the love of the Father to rescue you, get this, to rescue you from the very sin and darkness that keeps you from seeing and believing the things that I've placed before you. I came to rescue you from that darkness. So here's my conclusion, Grace. Jesus is the light of the world. Those charged with leading the covenant people of God had their eyes darkened by sin and were unable to see this. Consequently, rather than rejoice as they ought to have, they sought to dismiss Jesus on a matter of legal technicality. Jesus let them know that they were both wrong in their application of the law and on who it was standing before them. Again, then, let's not miss the earth-shattering, earth-shaking magnitude of Jesus' claim to be the light of the world, the one and only one who would deliver mankind from sin's darkness. Likewise, let's not miss the fact that John focused most on the leader's response to this claim that we might focus on our response to this claim. Where is your understanding of darkness where does, where does your understanding of darkness and light come from, Grace? How do you know what's good and what's bad, what's true and what's false, what's evil and what's not? Where does your understanding of darkness and light come from? Is it defined by the world or is it defined by the Word of God? And the answer for all of us is some of both. And it is our job to be in the Word and let it purify us by the power of the Spirit. What love of darkness, Grace, remains in you? So with this, the fact that he gives more attention to the response compels us to ask ourselves these questions. What love of darkness remains in you? What is keeping you from coming fully into the light? What lengths are you willing to go to to share the light of Christ with the world? These are just some of the questions that we're meant to ask ourselves. And so finally, John closed this scene by commenting on something familiar. These words he spoke in the treasury. Again, most likely the court of women, the location where the lights of the feast were first lit on the first day as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. John closes. He says it this way at the end. His point is that the sovereign hand of God cannot be stopped or stayed. God was bringing light and salvation to the world through Jesus and no power of hell nor scheme of man 
was or is or ever will be able to keep the love and light of God from coming to and remaining on all who will receive it. Come, therefore, grace, to the light of the world. Come with certain knowledge that if you do in faith, you will be welcomed and forgiven and freed and given understanding and adopted as everlasting sons and daughters of God.